This week, Talon EBITDA dropped Foreshadow's struggle to finance ESG transformation to prevent siphoning of hundreds of millions of dollars in value, latent bond trustee seeks substantive consolidation. Diamond Sports Preview's multi-billion dollar direct-to-consumer revenue generation strategy. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in high-yield distressed debt and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis, and Julian Boulan will be joining me for the Week in Review. For this week's Deep Dive, we will be featuring a replay of Reorg's April webinar, where Reorg's Shweta Rao and Martin Forbes of White & Case talk SPACs and explore some of the reasons for the recent surge in SPACs, common SPAC structures, and the impact of SPACs on leveraged finance documents. It's Friday, June 25th. Talon Energy, the Riverstone-backed merchant power generator, may face challenges raising the $600 million to $800 million of equity capital that sources say the company says it requires for its transformation toward a sustainable ESG-focused future after year-over-year deterioration in first quarter EBITDA was followed by weaker-than-forecast results at June's PGM interconnection capacity auction. On May 6, the company recorded a first quarter adjusted EBITDA of $117 million, a decrease of 44.3% from $210 million in the year earlier period, according to documents reviewed by Reorg. The company forecast full-year adjusted EBITDA of $500 million to $600 million compared with $576 million in the prior year, and adjusted free cash flow of $0 to $80 million compared with $145 million in 2020. Adjusted EBITDA less CapEx is forecast to total about $355 million. At the same time, the company is seeking to execute on its transformational move, announced in November, toward a clean power future. Talent's plan, developed through discussions with the Sierra Club, calls for ceasing coal-fired operations at three facilities in the PGM and the development of renewable energy and battery storage projects at strategic locations across its asset portfolio. Talent will require an equity infusion to grow into its capital structure, and according to sources, it is uncertain if its shareholder, Riverstone, which has owned Talent since taking it private in 2016, will provide the new capital. Talent's strategy shifts, first toward ESG and then toward data centers and crypto mining, have raised questions among investors, sources said. While on the surface, the data center crypto strategy will boost utilization at its Susquehanna plant because such facilities are energy intensive, it also exposes the weakness in Talon's existing business, which is fossil fuel-based, the sources said. In the Latem Airlines Chapter 11 cases, the UCC and the ad hoc group of Latem bondholders filed objections to Banco del Estado del Chile's scheduling motion related to its request for a substantive consolidation of Latem financing entities into Latem's parent company. The Chilean bond trustee argues that without consolidation of the estates of parent Latem Airlines Group SA, Latem Finance LTD, and Pueco Finance LTD, Latem Finance may receive a windfall recovery at the expense of creditors, including holders of the Chilean local bonds, arguing that hundreds of millions of dollars in value will be siphoned away from holders of the local bonds and Latem Parents' other creditors if Latem Finance and Pueco are permitted to be treated as separate and distinct legal entities from Latem Parent. The scheduling motion is currently slated to be heard Wednesday, June 30th. The debtors requested that the court deny the Banco Estado scheduling motion in order to allow the debtors to use the coming months to work with all stakeholders to develop and put forth a plan of reorganization that can be confirmed for the benefit of all stakeholders. The ad hoc group of bond holders said that the court should deny Banco Estado's motion because the bank lacks standing. The substance consolidation issue is not ripe. The substance consolidation motion can only be brought through an adversary proceeding, and Banco Estado has not identified any authority supporting its requested relief. 
The UCC's limited objection said that the court should adjourn final consideration of the scheduling motion until the parties have had the chance to engage in settlement discussions to adopt a schedule and explains that the substantive consolidation motion and the validity of the intercompany claims raise complex, intricate, and highly contentious issues that could materially affect the relative distributions to creditor groups. In lender and note holder discussion materials publicly disclosed on June 21st, Diamond Sports Group framed its internally built over-the-top direct-to-consumer, or DTC, strategy as an over $2 billion revenue opportunity in which new gamification, sports betting, and community features will drive use and engagement. The disclosure comes in the wake of Parent Sinclair Broadcast Group's May 5th announcement of plans to launch a DTC product in the first half of 2022. This announcement came on the heels of its April launch of the Bally Sports app, which similarly engages in streaming Diamond Sports licensed sports content. Sinclair has not disclosed where the DTC product, the Bally Sports app, or their related technology assets sit in Sinclair's structure, nor has it clearly delineated the relevant costs of each of the offerings. These factors could dictate where potential upside economics and asset value from the DTC product might flow within the Sinclair complex. Diamond Sports explained on June 21st that it continues to explore alternatives amid ongoing discussions with its creditors, in which the parties have reportedly been unable to reach a definitive agreement. Disclosure of the stalled negotiations and alternatives comes at a critical time, with Sinclair's dish retransmission contract reportedly expiring in September. Top Red stories this week included Lime Tree Bay lenders working with advisors after refinery indefinitely closes in wake of repeated EPA Clean Air Act violations, operational glitches. Kamensky moves to dismiss SEC securities fraud claim and civil suit related to Neiman Marcus conduct. Hertz implied enterprise value of $8 billion above plan value. Implied multiple lower than Avis. Forecasts assume EBITDA surpasses pre-pandemic levels. Direct investors, backstop group to own over 73% of reorganized equity. U.S. Supreme Court rules FHFA structure violates separation of powers. Lower courts should determine remedy on constitutional claim of shareholders challenging GSE net worth sweep. Statutory claim dismissed. Now here's Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Well, greetings all and welcome to the week ahead. Monday, June 28th, GTT Communications comes to the end of the forbearance related to its 7 and 7 eighths notes due 2024, for which a coupon payment of $22.6 million is due on June 30th. On Tuesday, June 29th, the VTS sale and omnibus hearing in Malincrote. There's also earnings from Pixis. Wednesday, June 30th, earnings from Bed Bath & Beyond and an omnibus hearing in Latam Airlines. Thursday, July 1st, stay relief hearing and a dip hearing in Stoneway Capital. And that is it from me. I hope y'all are staying cool. Back to y'all up in New York. And next up, Reorg Shwita Rao speaks to Martin Forbes of White & Case about SPACs. The discussion ranges from why SPACs are attractive to private equity and target companies, common SPAC structures, and the impact of SPACs on leveraged finance documents. Welcome to Covenant Conversations. I am Shweta Rao, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Martin Forbes, a partner of the Debt Finance Group in White & Case in London. We are going to talk about the boom in SPACs and their impact on financing transactions. Martin's practice focuses primarily on advising private equity sponsors, their portfolio companies, and other borrowers. Clients benefit from Martin's contribution to White & Case's US and European leveraged finance product platform. This combines sophisticated finance support with English, US, and local law capability in which private equity firms invest or raise finance. Hi, Martin. It's great to have you join us on our Covenant Conversations podcast today. Okay, thanks for having me. 
So you've written this really excellent article about SPACs or blank check companies, which is one of the hottest investment phenomena of last year and continuing this year. And these special acquisition companies are raising a record amount of money. Data from Refinitiv shows that in the first quarter of 2021, blank check companies have already beaten their 2020 fundraising record, raking in $79.4 billion globally year to date, that is in the first quarter, eclipsing the $79.3 billion raised in all of 2020. And you, you previously have written about how SPAC issuance will boost M&A activity, support, leverage finance issuance and give sponsors the opportunity to exit their existing investments. So let's talk about all these really interesting issues in this podcast. And let's start with the basics. What is a SPAC and what is powering the extraordinary boom in SPACs today? So a SPAC is just at heart a shell company, which will be organized by someone who's sponsoring it, probably with investing experience or experience in operating companies or or ideally both, to be honest. And they raise capital into that empty shell by conducting an IPO. So it becomes a listed company on a stock exchange. But the reason people call them blank check companies is the purpose of raising that cash is to make an acquisition within a specified time frame. Normally it's two years, but in theory it could be more or it could be less. And that acquisition is obviously just to acquire what's normally an existing private company. And so one of the reasons it's so exciting for private equity funds in terms of being able to exit transactions is, in a sense, all these SPACs that have been raised, and there are hundreds of them, you know, all exist. Most have not yet, you know, consummated their their SPAC acquisition and therefore aren't yet, you know, entities which own operating companies. And they all plan to do that. So there are, in effect, if you're a private equity sponsor who's looking to exit an investment, potentially, you know, hundreds of um, new purchasers that you could be be selling to, to the extent that certainly in the United States, you're now seeing a phenomenon of SPAC auctions, as you put it, where in, in certain auctions or certain exit transactions, you know, all of or most of the bidders to buy the asset are, are actually SPACs. I was just going to ask you how it's attractive to the target companies themselves. Yes, sure. And well, to an extent, it's it's attractive to the vendor to an extent rather than or as well as the as the target company. You know, to an extent, some of the attractiveness of, of a SPAC is that it's an alternative to a traditional IPO and it makes up for some of what you could see as the inadequacies or at least the limitations of a traditional IPO process. So the big one you hear capital markets lawyers talk about in in the US is that you fix the transaction value at the beginning of the process rather than at the end. So obviously in an IPO, you sell the shares and you have a price discovery process through the listing and you find out how much money you get when you've completed the listing. Whereas in a, a private acquisition, obviously you sell the shares under an acquisition agreement for an agreed price. And the SPAC model is more like a private acquisition. So you fix the price at the beginning so you have that that certainty. In addition, there are certain structural things with an IPO that doing a SPAC might allow you to to deal with. So for example, you can market the transaction maybe based on financial projections in a way that you can't do in an IPO process just because of securities law. 
um, you may be able to take more cash out of the transaction or exit to a more significant extent because you may not have to keep as large a stake locked up post-IPO. Um, you can do things that are more traditionally associated with private M&A. So, for example, you can have an earn-out transaction because obviously you've got the SPAC company as, as purchaser, like you have in a private deal, whereas obviously that's not really something you can achieve in a traditional IPO. So there's a number of attractions of, of doing this SPAC transaction rather than a traditional IPO exit. And, you know, to an extent, the, the enthusiasm for them is, is frankly just that they exist and they're a great new source of potential places that you can sell your business if you're looking to exit. But, you know, more specifically, they do deal with several, as I say, flaws or limitations, depending on your point of view, in the traditional IPO model. So it sounds like a very attractive option at the moment, you know, gives certainty, is quicker. The overwhelming majority of SPACs this year have been listed um, in U.S. exchanges. So what is the reason for the SPAC boom not yet having traveled in its same volume and quantum to Europe? And what needs to change for this product to catch up on this side of the pond? Well, it's a really good question, and there isn't one answer to it. Um, and in fact, most of the SPACs that have been done in, in, in Europe or people have looked at in, in London or normally in the Netherlands actually have a fairly significant US nexus. So they're either used to acquire US assets or in fact, they often change their, their listing afterwards to be a, a New York listing. It's hard to say a lot of it, frankly, is just the European markets tend to trail innovations in the US markets by a, a year or two. Now, SPACs actually aren't that recent a product, but certainly the, the current boom is, is only really a couple of a couple of years old, and there might just be something in that. You know, secondly, they are fundamentally a capital markets product. They, you know, they're, they're sold to the public like any other sort of public offering. And just the depth of the market and the and having investors in the market that are used to and understand that sort of product is, is obviously really important. And traditionally, that's not something that's that's necessarily been there in, in Europe so far. I think that increasingly as people get more familiar with it, certainly there's a lot of buzz on this side of the Atlantic at the moment in relation to SPACs. Inevitably, people will look at doing it because the fundamental reasons why they're desirable in the US are no different, frankly, um, in Europe. I think increasingly people will, will look at doing it, but there's a, there's a number of different reasons, partly to do with just where the innovation was and the depth of the market there, and partly to do with obviously people understanding and being familiar with exactly what the regulatory scheme is and how a SPAC works in, in the US, whereas you know, the first time you do one in, in London or in Amsterdam, it will inevitably have to be slightly different. Martin, you're... Uh, your expertise lies in debt financing transactions. How will SPACs be incorporated in such financing transactions? Well, there are several you know, specific structural features of SPACs that you need to address when you do the debt financing for them. And there has been debt financing done for a lot of SPAC transactions, again, mainly in the US, but I think we can say with a fair degree of certainty how that will translate into the, the European market you know, if and when um, you know, more deals become relevant here. So one of the features, certainly in US SPACs, and actually this wouldn't necessarily have to be the case in, in, in London or in other places in Europe, but certainly in the US, there's a you know, majority shareholder approval required 
to approve the acquisition once it's been identified and done. And there's the opportunity for investors to effectively take the money back out at that point. Now, effectively, that just becomes a, an additional condition to the acquisition. You know, in the US, that means that SPAC deals typically take longer to conclude than a straight private acquisition financing transaction. You know, in Europe, to be honest, a lot of this could run concurrently with competition or any other similar conditions you have. And so it won't necessarily make it a longer process, but it's you know it's one more piece of conditionality you'll have in your deal. And obviously, for a syndicated transaction, it's one more thing you need to bear in mind that that might mean your your deal doesn't end up happening. You know, normally, the shareholders do approve these transactions. Normally, they stay invested because, frankly, they invested in the SPAC in the first place in order to carry out an M&E transaction. So it's surprising if, if a large number of people choose to withdraw. But it, you know, it's, it's a bit of uncertainty. Or additional condition that you need to that you need to deal with. Normally, for that reason, you will have a, a pipe transaction. So, in other words, you will have equity commitments alongside your um, your IPO when you do the SPAC. Normally, from people who invest in the in the SPAC itself, but it could be from from anyone, frankly. So, a sort of equity co-investment. Now, that can be used you know, to make up for investors who who back off and don't do the deal when they get the chance to, to take the vote in that, but it can be used to upsize the size of the SPAC transaction that, that gets done. But you know the fundamentals of the SPAC don't really change. You've still got these conditionality aspects baked into it. And really, when you do the financing, you just need to make sure the conditionality of your financing is similar to the conditionality for the transaction actually closing. In the US, you also have a need to file a a proxy statement, which to an extent is relatively similar to do it, and you listing, frankly, because you're making such a large acquisition from a company that previously had no assets. Now, again, if based if you're working for the arrangers of a financing for a SPAC deal, you just need to think a little bit, as you would in any transaction for a, a listed company, about what information is going to be in that statement about your financing, you know, both from a you know, reputational or internal point of view as to how much involvement you want in that, and also in terms of what the information in there might do in terms of, of when it becomes public, how it affects your syndication, and, and so on. And so a lot of the same considerations that you would have, frankly, in relation to any IPO financing or any public transaction, it's just you kind of have it in two different steps. You've got an entity which is already IPO'd, but which then has this proxy statement that follows along, along later. Now, both of those features could be different depending on what exchange you are trying to list in, in in Europe and, frankly, how you choose to structure your, your deal. I mean, there's a real choice for SPAC issuers if they come across to London, for example, because you wouldn't need to have the same degree of conditionality around shareholder approval for the acquisition as you have in the, in the US because the securities laws are different. So it's obviously very attractive to maybe you know, just, just not have that conditionality, make the transaction more certain, make yourself look better, frankly, to the vendors who, who are selling to you because you don't have that uncertainty. You know, but on the other hand, if you're trying to establish a SPAC market in, in Europe, if you've got maybe some of the same investors who are used to doing these transactions in the US and who've got a degree of familiarity you know, with those features and maybe take some comfort out of them, you may wish to, to import some of those features in any case, frankly, in order to make sure your, 
your SPAC IPO gets off successfully in the first place. And so really the extent to which you include those features and exactly how they work is all stuff that's going to have to be reflected in the conditionality ultimately of your debt financing. So coming to SPACs and documents, what impact will the acquisition by the SPAC of a target company have on that target company's existing leveraged finance documents? So it will depend. In common, you know, to an extent with any acquisition financing or any financing for an IPO, it, it will depend exactly what you what you do because there's there's several different options. You might be doing a brand new financing for the IPO. You might be seeking to retain existing financing, maybe with change of control waivers or, or repaying some of it, or whatever whatever other features you have to to incorporate in order to keep the debt after an IPO, depending on your existing document. Now, whichever one of those you, you go with, you know, there's certain, you know, technical things you just need to make sure work effectively around matching conditionality, making sure you're comfortable with the, the sort of public nature of it and, and whatever else is going on in relation to the SPAC itself. And that's really the stuff we just talked about. And to be honest with you, I'm sure I've oversimplified, but that's kind of the extent of it. There's certain technical features of a SPAC that, that you need to make sure you address. Now, beyond that, it's going to look quite a lot like a financing for a, a newly IPO'd company, because to a significant extent, that's what it is. You, you can get to that point through a different route. And so functionally, it's quite likely the financing is going to have substantial similarities to that. And most of how it works in terms of the leverage and the pricing and indeed the covenants is going to be as much driven by just the reality of what it is, which is a crossover investment grade financing for a, for a listed company. And the SPAC specific features, to an extent, as I say, other than the, the technical bits, are going to be a result just of the differences in the commercial transaction from it, it being a SPAC. Now, one example would be that SPACs tend to pay relatively premium prices for the assets they acquire, which is one more reason, frankly, that they're attractive to, to vendors. You know, that's a trade-off the investors in the SPACs think is worthwhile, obviously, or they wouldn't invest. And they think it's, it's worthwhile because they kind of invest in this sort of transaction with the liquidity of the public market. So it's very easy to trade in and, and trade out, which certainly isn't the case if you're investing in a, in a private equity fund. But then that pricing, for example, might determine to an extent how much leverage that a, a SPAC company is willing to have on the transaction. It might be a bit more conservative, for example, than a, a straight new IPO of a, a previously private equity-owned company. It might be they look to, to repay the debt down a little bit more if you're keeping the existing financing than a, a normal private equity sponsor, sponsor would. It might mean if they have financial covenants or anything like that in the document. I mean, normally those things would come out if they exist at an IPO anyway, but but those are the sort of triggers that, again, you might find that a SPAC owned entity is just a little bit more conservative on because you know, you've already paid a relative premium on the price in lots of cases. So you probably want to go with a relatively conservative acquisition financing structure. But you know, these to an extent are, are deal by deal considerations. And they're things that, that just result from the economic realities of the SPAC transaction rather than any, you know, any legal or technically necessary features. 
if the target company were to keep its uh, existing financing, you know, in some leveraged loans, you have the concept of a qualifying listing. And if there were a qualifying listing, then a lot of the terms get loosened, baskets get increased, information requirements change, the dividend uh, restrictions fall away. So perhaps that could be something that becomes those sort of qualifying listing terms become relevant again in leveraged loans looking forward in in case you know people are expecting that instead of IPOing a company might go through a listing through the SPAC route. Yeah, I, I definitely think that that will become relevant. I mean, sponsors already are very focused on at least making sure they have the flexibility to do that if they do an IPO. And, you know, one of the reasons really is that it's, it's difficult enough to time the markets and get your IPO transaction done without also having to time the markets in order to get a debt financing transaction done, which, which might have some different tensions. And, you know, at best, it's distracting to the people trying to carry out the, the deal. So, you know, there's often value in keeping the existing financing, even if it's just in the, in the short term. And I think that the increased likelihood of exiting into an IPO or a SPAC will, will drive people to be more focused on those terms, certainly. And I think, frankly, the, the fact that the existence of SPACs changes the, the possibilities, for example, in terms of, of how much a sponsor can realistically you know, divest at once into what will be a, well, a SPAC transaction rather than an IPO, you know, increases the need again for the flexibility because there's just more different options that you want to cover off. And we've already seen, actually, sponsors look to include in the change of control provisions you know, language that effectively would ensure that a SPAC transaction won't result in a change of control. So, for example, most leveraged loans, or certainly most leveraged loans of a scale that are likely to end up in an IPO, already have a sort of negative change of control feature where following an IPO, the sponsor doesn't have to have to hold a controlling stake anymore. And there's no change of control as long as someone else doesn't acquire a controlling stake. Now, we've already seen, for example, sponsors look to include language to the effect that for the purpose of one of those tests, a SPAC isn't a single person who, if they control the company or acquire a controlling stake, would cause a change of control. And instead, you look through the SPAC to the public shareholders. So we're already seeing sponsors looking to make sure that that sort of flexibility works. And I think it will definitely cause increased focus on what this financing would look like after an IPO or after a SPAC, because realistically, I think the proportion of exits that wind up in a, in a public company is going to be higher just because the existence of so many SPACs and people looking to do more is going to give sponsors more options to do that. So this is an exciting time for you because there's a, um, you know, some creative thinking around SPACs required and how they will implement the documents that you're drafting today, uh, looking into the future. For, for sure, yes, for sure. And I think that, you know, I mean, the funny thing is when we talk about keeping the existing leveraged finance document post-SPAC transaction, you know, of course, in the main, I'm not describing anything that's specific to the, the SPAC deal, because by definition, these these are loans that that already that already exist, um, and so one of the things to think about is, is is what the changes will be as you go into the SPAC. Obviously, sponsors would much rather do that without any sort of lender consent to to make that happen. Um, there's an interplay between how much leverage the market will will accept, frankly, on a listed company, and also 
in the context of FAC, maybe a tendency to be conservative in this. Against how much debt is already in the companies, you know, what the terms are in the pricing, you know, how low the margin ratchet can, can go up, what leverage level, and, and, and whether that's as attractive as, as refinancing it, but bearing in mind you get the additional certainty. So you've got a number of different things that, that interplay as that goes on. And, you know, the features you'd be looking at in an existing document, whether you're looking at whether a current one, you know, is attractive enough to survive a SPAC or what features you want to bake in going forward are all the things you'd expect for an IPO company. So sufficient dividend flexibility potentially to, to, to meet whatever dividend plans you have as a public company, whether that's after an IPO or a SPAC. Obviously, the information requirements in the document will need to be consistent with the obligations on a listed company in whichever jurisdiction you're in. So you probably can't have anything forward-looking, for example. Um, and you know all, all of the features that might turn off at the back of the document at a you know, particular leverage level or following an IPO are the sort of things that people will be looking harder at just because it becomes more concrete or more likely that this is something that will become relevant in the future. And the other option mentioned was that instead of retaining your existing financing, you took brand new financing uh, when you were acquired by a SPAC. What are the considerations that would go into such a new financing? Sort of why would someone want to go that route and what would those document features be like? Yes, for, for sure. And I think it's worth saying as well that you know, we tend to focus on, you know, and it's not just leverage finance lawyers, I'm sure it's, it's, it's bankers and, and everyone else involved with the with the debt side of this, but you know, we tend to focus on, on whether you refinance it at closing or, or not. That is worth saying that, you know, all of these transactions will eventually end up in a, a, a refinanced form of document, it would be, I think, very unusual. In fact, I've never seen it, that someone would would IPO and then still have the form of leverage finance document that they used to have, you know, five years later or, or seven years later. And I think no one would ever would ever plan to do that. It tends to be more of a, I mean, stop gaps maybe not quite fair, but it tends to be a, a medium-term solution at, at best. And the reason for that is that there are loads of attractions of getting on to a, an investment-grade style facility which is designed for a, for a listed company, they tend to be a little bit less restrictive than, than leverage finance documents. Um, and always that's attractive. They tend to be a little bit simpler. You tend not to require the sort of intercredits mechanics and security and just all of the, the background stuff, which is both complex to understand and, and costly to establish and maintain that a leverage structure has. Um, and in addition to that, you often find that that listed companies over time just want to change the nature of who the lenders are. So, you know, a bank club deal becomes a more natural thing for an established listed company to, to have maybe than a sort of leverage finance, you know, syndicate, which just needs dealt with in a sort of different way. It's not it's not really a relationship deal in the same in the same fashion. So whether it's sooner or later, people will tend to get to the point that they go to a traditional, you know, pre or post IPO facility. And the features of that in relation to a SPAC deal are going to be just really similar to the features of one of those deals that you would do if you were exiting straight into a straight into an IPO. So you're looking at leverage of probably opening after the IPO of three, maybe three and a half times, so certainly not the, the six or seven you, you often see in a leverage finance transaction, probably a flat structure. Um, so in other words, you're not going to have a first and second lien or, or anything like that, or you're unlikely to at least. Um, 
probably guaranteed but not secured in most cases certainly through time and ideally without the, the full kind of target group guarantee structure you see in a leverage deal which can be expensive to create and maintain across a number of jurisdictions and generally in terms of, of the covenants you know more freedom to, to make acquisitions disposals and in particular dividends without there being really any meaningful controls in an investment based finance document on that sometimes the, the flip side is you do have a financial covenant which other than on the revolving credit facility most leverage finance deals don't anymore and so in other words the the features of a deal you will end up in after a stack are ultimately probably the same as the features that you will end in after an IPO you know it may be more likely that you keep your leverage finance documents in the short term through the SPAC transaction, especially if it's meant to be a sort of power exit at that stage and um, with, with a second stage to come later. Um, or it might be just that the sort of greater degree of control that you might see sponsors exert on a SPAC exit as distinct from an IPO means that's more likely as well in the, in the short term. But I think ultimately, these transactions are all going to end up with financings that look like finances that listed companies have because ultimately all of these exits are intended to end up with normal listed companies. Thanks, Martin. That's a really good overview of what documents would look like in the short term and in the long term once a target company is acquired by a SPAC and listed. Is there anything else that uh, has come across your desk when you've been working on this hot new phenomenon that you would like our listeners to know? In relation to SPACs? No, not, not really, I don't think. Um, I mean, we, we've not done many of these in, in Europe. So actually one of the, <laughs> we've talked to many more people about these than we've implemented. So it's probably as important for people to understand that, that really, you know, most of this is extrapolated from, you know, we've done, I think between 50 and 100 IPOs of, of SPAC deals in the US, many of which are still looking for the target, you know, many of which have really done it. So we, we've done a lot of these finance things as, as a law firm but primarily in the, in the US. So a lot of this is, is extrapolated you know, from the US, assuming what a listing structure in Europe would, would look like and, and then looking at how it plays out. I think that if you've got a US SPAC making an acquisition of a European asset, which in the short term is maybe the most likely thing to happen, frankly, as um, you know, there's a lot of SPACs chasing the same number of targets as, as ever in the US. Some will certainly start to hunt in Europe, I think, quite soon. I think it's all but certain that what I've described will be what happens because that is an experience of, of US facts and that's and that's real time. As respect with, with Europe, depending on, on where people list and exactly what the features are of, of their SPAC when they list, some of this will be subject to change. I mean, what we're trying to do really is best fit the features of the SPAC market that we know to what will be quite an exciting and developing SPAC market we expect in Europe. Well, we hope that this excitement development comes into Europe soon. That was a really great podcast. Thank you so much, Martin, for talking us through what the SPAC market looks like in the US and what to expect in Europe and how it impacts leverage finance documentation. It was great chatting with you. Thanks, Martin. Okay, thanks, Rita. Appreciate it. Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg.com media page as well as Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend and see you next Sunday.